going on? This is Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets podcast. Today, a chat with Claude Johnson, author of the book, The Black Fives, The Epic Story of Basketball's Forgotten Era. And it's a really interesting story because, you know, the NBA is, it doesn't go back as far as Major League Baseball, the NFL, that kind of thing. I mean, it's 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 relatively... Uh, it's a baby compared to those. I mean, it came along in the basically the mid-40s, late-40s, integrated fairly quickly compared to the other leagues. Um, but there's a rich history of basketball, especially in New York City, especially amongst the African-American community. And Claude Johnson uh, does such an amazing job of detailing that in his book and the Workers' Foundation. And we'll get into that a little bit. We're also going to bring in Tom Dowd, our producer, who had uh, done extensive work for his New York City basketball podcaster is going to be coming out in a little bit and talk to Claude Johnson as well. So I'm going to bring in TD here in a minute. But first, I just want to touch on what's going on with the Nets right now. I just got back from Atlanta. Uh, It's never fun as the Nets broadcaster to be in another team's building when they beat you at the buzzer. Unfortunately, that's what happened with uh, Trey Young's buzzer beater to hand the Nets their second straight loss after the All-Star break. Um, Things are going to take some time right now with all the new faces. Uh, Jacques Vaughn has got a lot of puzzle pieces to try and fit together. But something that happened during the All-Star break, significant for the organization and for Jacques Vaughn, is that he got a contract extension. Now, we know the kind of year it's been with Jacques Vaughn. He went from being an assistant coach to being the interim coach to not knowing what his future was going to be to becoming the head coach for we don't know how long. And then this happens where the organization has committed to Jacques Vaughn long term. And why would they do this at this moment? They're showing a commitment to Jacques Vaughn because during a very difficult time for the franchise. Jacques Vaughn stepped forward and was a calming influence, was an incredible representative of the organization. He was the guy that had to go out there every day and answer those questions. And he did it with his infectious positivity. There is just a sense of calm with Jacques. There's a sense of everything's going to be okay. He's got incredible leadership skills, humor. Um, He's just an amazing person. And I think all of those things are the things that you want as the face of your organization, especially when you're trading away superstars who were, who kind of were the face of the organization. Now you have that void and Jacques Vaughn has stepped into that void. And he is a a guy that you can be proud of to get up there and represent your organization each and every day. Um, Sean Marks had the foresight to bring in Jacques Vaughn as a part of Kenny Atkinson's staff. And when they parted ways with Kenny Atkinson, he stepped up then. Remember, he coached the Nets in the bubble. And when there were guys who were not playing, guys were injured, Jacques Vaughn got them along the way. You know, he got them to the playoffs that year in the bubble. Um, He had his little bamboo plant that he took with him to Orlando, and he used that as a metaphor for his team. And and you saw right there that that Jacques Vaughn is a head coach in the NBA. He deserves to be. 
He had gotten a chance with Orlando a while back. He really kind of jumped at any opportunity. It wasn't a good opportunity. He made the most of it for a couple of years. It didn't last. He went back to being an assistant coach. As we mentioned, he's under Kenny Atkins and staff. And when Steve, when Sean Marks decides to bring in Steve Nash, Jacques Vaughn had other opportunities to be a head coach. But his family had taken some roots in Brooklyn. He had kids who are in that age of like middle school, about to go to high school. They were, they were uh, enjoying their time in Brooklyn. He had an opportunity to stay with the Nets and work under Steve Nash, and he did it. If you've listened to the podcast, we had, a, uh, we had an episode with Roy Williams after Jacques Vaughn took over. Roy Williams was his coach at Kansas. He's the guy that recruited him to Kansas. He's a big reason why Jacques Vaughn went to Kansas. And he just talked about the character of Jacques Vaughn. And sometimes coaches will say, uh, I'm about family. I don't know if they mean it. They jump around. They go from one job to the next, one city to the next. It meant something to, to Jacques Vaughn to let his family get some roots in Brooklyn. And despite some other opportunities, he stayed with the Nets as an assistant coach after even having been an interim head coach. And when it, it wasn't working out and Steve Nash was let go, Jacques Vaughn jumped in with both feet, his infectious smile at that podium, and just let everybody know that everything was going to be okay. And he was going to guide everyone through these tough times. And in the end, he has been rewarded with a commitment from the organization that Jacques Vaughn is our guy going forward. There were rumors of other guys. There, there, was, there was a lot of questions as to what direction the Nets would go. But once they saw how Jacques has handled the situation, they decided he is our guy going forward. We're not going to let anybody else get a crack at him. And Jacques Vaughn's going to get to stay in Brooklyn for a little while. I mean, this is going on eight years now. I think he's been with the organization. That's unheard of when it comes to being able to stay with one NBA team. Coaches get hired to get fired, right? The, the great Luke Karnaseka line. Today's peacock is tomorrow's feather duster. They love a coach. We were just in Atlanta where it wasn't even two years ago. Nate McMillan was being given credit for turning around the franchise. And a lot of their good star young players that they had, he turned it around, got them to the playoffs, started making them think about, you know, they got to the conference final. And less than two years later, he's out. Coaching is a fickle business. But they are also, the head coach is the guy that you put out there each and every night to answer the tough questions. And Jacques has, is a guy that you want up there answering those questions. Jacques will use some great lines sometimes. And there was one recently, you know, when someone shows you who, are, who they are, believe them. That's a stoic philosophy, a stoic quote. I would talk to him about it afterwards. And we talk about Ryan Holiday, the author. One of the great books that I've read, and, and I would recommend it. We'll give you a book recommendation right off the bat from Ryan Holiday. The obstacle is the way. That's another stoic philosophy. Jacques Vaughn, his, his mantra from day one has been no excuses, right? There have been a lot of excuses. And a lot of times you, you're, you don't want to make excuses for a team. You're just pointing out reasons why. But Jacques Vaughn doesn't want to give his team any excuses. And the whole idea of the obstacle of, is the way is that sometimes things look at, at such, a, such a challenge, but that's really the way through it. 
And it looked like a very difficult time when Jacques Vaughn was taking over for Steve Nash. But he didn't look at it that way. He looked at it as an opportunity, an opportunity to show off his skill set as a head coach. You know, anyone can steer the ship in calm waters, right? But a good captain knows how to get you through a storm. And Jacques Vaughn was able to transform the way the Nets played. And now that the stars are gone, it's a different job. He's got a different set of puzzle pieces to try and fit together. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. These two games out of the All-Star break is showing you that even though there's some really good young players that are thrown into the mix, there are some challenges ahead here. Cam Johnson, after the game in Atlanta, said it very eloquently. You know, him and Mikel Bridges came from a system the last four years on the defensive end where there are principles that were ingrained in them, that became instinctive, but at the same time, opposite from kind of the principles and the instincts that the Nets have been imploring over the last couple of years. So even the terminology and just trying to be instinctive, it's different. It's going to take some time, but he says they're growing each and every game. The problem is the Nets are getting so late into the season right now to try and figure this out. Sometimes you get 20, 25 games just to figure out who you are as a team. After the All-Star break, the Nets are facing 24 games. It's not a lot of time to really get on the same page and figure out who you are with all these new faces. But as Cam Johnson said, it's getting better. Jacques Vaughn is a great communicator. It's going to get better. They will be a better team by the end of the season than they are right now. And hopefully they can hang on to one of those top six spots in the Eastern Conference and make some noise after that. Uh, You know, the fact that Jacques Vaughn chose to take root in Brooklyn with his family and he's been rewarded by a commitment from the organization, having an African-American head coach in a place like Brooklyn, so diverse, I think is also significant. The Nets and Barclays Center have always embraced that, embraced that history. Uh, When you come into Barclays Center, there are murals on the walls and they depict this era predating the NBA but a part of the intrinsic New York City basketball history and the history of African-Americans in the borough of Brooklyn. All of that we cover with Claude Johnson in his book, The, uh, the Black Fives, the epic story of basketball's forgotten era. Uh, my producer, Tom Dowd, has done extensive work on a, a podcast series about the history of basketball in, uh, in Brooklyn, especially and, uh, and he worked and, and talked to Claude Johnson for this project. Um, and TD, uh, when you go through Barclay Center, you see the Smart Set Athletic Club photos that are in that, that mural. And they tell so much about the history of basketball that I think a lot of people don't know of. It's not like the, the Negro Leagues that ran concurrent to the major leagues. This was like a these are the founding fathers of the NBA in New York City basketball. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm so glad we were able to get Claude on because, you know, when I talked to him, we mostly talked about Brooklyn and, and his book goes a lot beyond that. And, and you're able to get with him about all of New York City and, and mm-hmm. Chicago and, and Pittsburgh. And, and like you said, the NBA is a young league compared to the NHL, the NFL, Major League Baseball. And we tend to measure 
the history of these sports with those leagues. But basketball has this really deep history that goes 50 years back mm. uh, before the NBA really got started. And it's a little bit of a wild west. There's a lot of small leagues and some slightly bigger ones like the American Basketball League, the original National Basketball League. There's a lot of independent teams, mm. um, the original Celtics, the New York Renaissance. And so a lot of that history has kind of been forgotten. Um, and we highlighted on the walls at Barclays Center, and Claude did a wonderful job uh, really digging into it in his book. Yeah, and he's a, he's a dedicated his life. He's a former NBA executive, uh, worked for Nike, and then um, has dedicated his life now to, you know, he has a foundation uh, of the Black Fives Foundation. Uh, we'll talk about all of that. It's really, it's an amazing history. Some of the imagery of, of things we'll talk about during the course of this uh, this interview with Claude Johnson of of this majestic time in New York City basketball. Uh, the college game goes back a long ways. And, but yeah, you like you said, I, I had a hard time just trying to, I was just trying to corral all this, the, these different things in leagues and and basketball clubs and just try and get a sense. It was good that I didn't know as much about it because it was able to get Claude to kind of wrangle this all in. This, this, like you said, the Wild West of this forgotten era. So, um, Ty, why don't you stick around with us afterwards? And we'll talk a little bit more about the podcast series you have coming up. Sounds good. In our post game, in our post game show for Claude Johnson. But right now, here on the Voice of the Nets, the author of the Black Fives, here is Claude Johnson. Claude, you're the author of The Black Fives, the epic story of basketball's forgotten era. Um, and I, I got to admit, the most I knew was going into Barclays Center for the first time and, and walking around the concourse and seeing that, that team photo of the New York Rens. And, uh, and, you know, then I've gone back and looked at, you know, what that is, try and investigate it a little bit. Uh, so it, I, I guess that's apropos that it is a forgotten era. Could you tell us what are the Black Fives, first of all? Yeah, thank you. And Chris, first, I mean, it's a real honor and real great to be on with you and to be on the air and meet you, and, you. and spend this time together. So thank you for that. Um, no, so the Black Fives, that refers to the African-American basketball teams that were uh, that existed prior to the NBA. So the the era has to do with all of the teams, the players, the contributors, coaches, etc., both men's and women's teams. And uh, this period took place from around 1904 when the game was first widely introduced uh, in the Washington DC area by a man named Edwin Bancroft Henderson, who's considered the grandfather of black basketball, uh, till 1950 when the NBA signed its first black players. And so that time in between is this historic period that people just forgot about. It wasn't intentionally paved over. It's just that for different reasons, um, you know, this, this history got buried. And, you know, our role has been to try to unbury it and get proper recognition for that important history. So it's referring really to it's, it's not any one team or league. It's just an era you know, it can be a little confusing because it's trying to sort of uh, encompass all these clubs and programs. But let's go back just to that time period you're talking about, the, the, the turn of the century, the early 1900s. What was the state of basketball? Was there professional basketball, let alone, you know, whether it be 
segregated or integrated? What was kind of the uh, the world of basketball at that time? Yeah, so there were there was no reason for African Americans to play sports during that time because remember this is coming out of the post reconstruction era where people were just trying to survive chris you know people were trying yeah. to figure out how to how to get by and a lot of folks were migrating from the south to escape the oppressive way of life uh, down there and so as they come came up north um, they began crowding into cities so my the focus of my book is on how the game evolved out of that in really four different areas, New York City, which includes Harlem and Brooklyn and Manhattan, and then uh, Washington, D.C. area, and then Pittsburgh and Chicago, and how the game emerged and and why in those specific locales. And so in New York City, just as an example, um, when I started writing about it, I realized, okay, there were all, there was a lot of overcrowding and this overcrowding and congestion caused health issues because people were in oftentimes in uh, congested buildings where there would be no window or no ventilation. Meanwhile, the mortality rate among African-Americans was something like 25%. In other words, one in four were dying from pneumonia or tuberculosis. And Mm. health leaders back then thought that it was just because they weren't exercising their lungs enough. They didn't realize it was highly contagious. But as a result, people started to look around for answers. And one place for answers was the YMCA, which had formed in 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 England in the in the mid 1800s as a result of the whole Industrial Revolution. And so they start to realize, well, to avoid, you know, moral decay and uh, health decay, uh, let's figure out ways to be. Uh, to, to combine all these ideas of um, muscular Christianity, a, a physical culture. Back then, they didn't have anything like like fitness. There was no such thing as physical fitness. There was no phys ed class. It wasn't mm-hmm. a concept. So they start to realize the mind and the body, the mind and the body and the spirit go together. And so that's their slogan to make you know for 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 the YMCA that makes them who they are. But uh, black uh, health leaders and community leaders started realizing, wait, we should do something like that too. And so um, some innovative uh, uh, pioneers during that time formed the Alpha Physical Culture Club, which was the first African-American athletic club. And it was for the purpose of community wellness, really, more so than, hey, let's play this sport, there's money to be made. That came way later and there, there were no professional teams. In fact, because basketball overall, even in the days of James Naismith, which was, you know, just 15 years earlier, um, was was born out of that YMCA concept. So the idea of playing for money um, was almost blasphemy to the authorities who, who governed the game. They didn't want any connection between money and the sport really for the, the longest time. And um, so that's kind of where I pick it up. Yeah, I mean, well, Naismith was a, like a gym teacher, right? I mean, that was his, that's how he invented the game. Yeah, I mean, he was given the instruction to invent the game by a man named Luther Gulick uh, up at up in Springfield at the, at the uh, it was called the uh, Springfield International School. And, you know, he, his assignment was come up with a game for the winter months because once football ends, these young men are just, 
roaming around and they don't know what to do with themselves. And there's, you know, Springfield was a test case because, and they, that's why they put a branch there. There was another branch in Montreal because it was just big enough of a city for there to be enough vice, but not too much where they could figure out, okay, can we create something that get, keeps these kids, you know, occupied um, where they don't go downhill. And, um, and so that's how this game was invented. And it took a while, you know, the back and forth iteration. But when he, when he came up with it, you know, it was like a, and I write about this in my book, you know, just the, it was sort of a brainstorm, uh, you know, light bulb went off and, and he uh, had this game. And um, in black communities, it didn't take off uh, right away at first um, because it was, uh, because Edwin Henderson, who who is this person uh, from D.C., he was a gym teacher, uh, and, and the uh, schools were segregated back then. So he came up to learn the game at Harvard University during a summer course. And while he was there, you know, he realized, wow, this this might be something that kids back home could enjoy and appreciate. But when he came back, he said that at first they thought it was a sissy sport because this mm. was the days of you know football and. Uh, and rugged uh, determination. And so he had to really fight hard to make sure that people, you know, really embraced it. And it took a while, but at, but not long before, before the game was then, you know, brought on board. And what do you think was the, so you have all these different programs, these different little clubs, I guess you could say, what were, what was the one that was sort of the driving force behind spreading the game? Well, in D.C., you had uh, you had Henderson who formed um, an, an organization. It was an all amateur organization called the uh, ISAA, the uh, Interscholastic Athletic Association of Mid-Atlantic States. And the reason he did that was because, like you said, there were all these clubs and different organizations and people, and they didn't really have any way to organize and play one another. So it's all intramural. But, it, but still, through that, at least uh, he was able to train kids to play the game and learn the game. And then, for, so, that, so that was one part. And then another part in New York City was that you started having these organizations, churches, uh, YMCAs, um, club teams, uh, the, like the Smart Set Athletic Club of Brooklyn, which was this organization that was a social and athletic club, black run, black founded in, Bro in Brooklyn in 1904. And when I first, you know, discovered this organization, I was actually working at the NBA mm -hmm. and I was saying to myself, how is it that we don't know about this team and this organization? Like it's unheard of. And uh, that began my journey. Um, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And uh, there was, you know, years would go by before the Barclays Center was even a, a, a concept, a, thought, a twinkle yeah. in anybody's eye. Right. Yeah. So. Um, so, uh, you know, so then that led me on this quest to find out more. And it, so it turns out that there were a few clubs in the New York city area that I, that I really recognized as being the ones that drove this. And it was the St. Christopher club, which was, uh, within the auspices of the St. Philip's Protestant Episcopal church, uh, that at the time was in Midtown. And you have to realize too, uh, your listeners have to realize that the black population of New York City was mostly concentrated in Greenwich Village. And then it moved up to Midtown to an area called the Tenderloin District, which was in the, in, you know, from the, from about the twenties to the fifties, uh, centered up along fifth, between fifth Avenue and seventh Avenue. 
And so St. Philip's Church was located in the midst of that because it was so bad in terms of vice that its nickname was Satan's Circus. Hmm. And uh, that's and so this is a high rent <laughs> district now, though, that, air, that right. That yeah, section yeah, that it, yeah, exactly. Right. So but, um, you know, the St. Christopher Club was named uh, after the St. Christopher, the patron saint of safe travel, because they hmm. wanted their, their, the, these kids who were just, you know, just rampant um, to have a safe haven. And then out of that safe haven eventually came uh, athletic activities, um, boxing, uh, track and field and basketball. And then, you know, at first they started um, playing in very informally. So the first game between two independent African-American basketball teams actually took place in Brooklyn, in Bushwick, at the corner of Gates and Knickerbocker hmm. in, a, in a renovated handball facility over there. That's what year is this around? Lot. What's what year is this around? This is 1907. Wow, oh. this and is almost 40 were, years before the NBA came along. Oh yeah, and then they had, yeah. uh, and then they had, uh, you know, about a hundred people that that came came there. But but you know, uh, the next game maybe there were 200, and then all of a sudden 300, and they started to realize, well, we we should charge 25 cents, you know, for the admission. And then the 25 cents allowed them to uh, hire, first of all, get more, you know, different, uh, bigger facilities. But also at that time, music um, was becoming more popular because the, the gramophone and the radio were, were, were commercially available for the first time. So listeners could actually hear music and they were like, wait, we want to dance to this. But you couldn't dance to it if it were just sheet music prior to the gramophone. And a lot of people couldn't uh, afford a gramophone or a radio. So there was a ballroom construction craze. And then all these ballrooms got built. And then on certain days they were empty. So these enterprising black basketball promoters said, hey, wait, we can, let's put two and two together. Let's have uh, a game. And then we'll also hire a band, an orchestra, usually ragtime. And then um, they put, you know, these Music would play before and then during halftime and then after the game. And that marriage of music uh, with basketball actually was an African-American innovation back then. In the early uh, in, 1900s. Yeah. Yes. And we think that it's, we think it's game operations now have put that all together. When you go <laughs> right. to basketball games and there's a DJ before, or, you know, the DJ at halftime, like this was started out with a ballroom with an orchestra and then the ballroom, they would play basketball. These must be big ballrooms, by the way. Well, they they weren't that big. It's just that the games were less, uh, you know, less prominent back then, you know, yeah. so the, the courts were sometimes smaller. But after a while, suddenly they would have, you know, 3,000 uh, people that eventually in the 1910s, mid-1910s. And the question was, well, where's all this money going? Um, you know, we have enough money that we're bringing in. Uh, if you were the host team, if you were the Smart Set Athletic Club and you were bringing in Ho Howard University for, for a game at the 14th Regiment Armory in Park Slope, um, you know, you, you would rent this, the facility. You would also pay for the visiting team's travel. You would put them up in a hotel, get them food, dining, have a reception for them. Often these teams would have a sister team that would be responsible for the entertainment. And then when the, when the sister team played, the guys would be, do the 
would flip the rolls and do that, uh, and, and, you know, decorate the facility or whatever the case. <laughs> and, um, that was, that was like true hosting. That's what hosting meant back then. Now we use that term as just, Hey, the Nets are hosting the wizards. Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> really know? were hosting. Yeah. We always say you like, really we're, were. Not, we're yeah. not laying out a, you know, food platter for the uh, visitors. What, but at the time though, so you mentioned like, you mentioned Harvard already, you mentioned Howard already. Was college basketball a thing? at that moment? Um, you know, it was, but not among African-Americans because okay. th there were just too many concerns socially and culturally and just for survival for a student, at, you know, a student or a student's family to even want their kid to get into sports because there was no opportunity. So it was a considered almost frivolous amongst the African-American community Whereas there's such a, such a flip now where so many looked at it as the ultimate thing that they strive for. Yeah. So, because, because back then it just really had no meaning. You weren't going to get drafted. There, there wasn't even a professional league, you know, so we can talk about Dolly King later because he actually was from Brooklyn and he was at LIU and he left his undefeated uh, LIU team mid season, even though he was the captain and the leading scorer which would be unheard of today, but he left that he left so that he could tour with the New York Renaissance, the Rens that you mentioned, hmm. wow. because he knew that yeah. he wasn't going to be able to play professionally, uh, you know, in a, in a circuit. Um, but back then that's how it was. So you had colleges and Edwin Henderson had to actually convince Howard university to, uh, to make his team, which was called the 12th streeters, uh, which was populated, like the entire lineup was all Howard uh, students already. So he went to the administration and said, well, you should really make this your varsity team. And eventually they agreed. And so that became one of the first HBCU basketball teams back in the in 1910. And then the others followed, you know, Hampton and Lincoln and, and others. Um, but back then they didn't have any regulation, regulatory oversight. So a team like Howard or Hampton could come to New York City to play a semi-pro team like the St. Christopher Club or the Incorporators or or even a professional team like the New York Renaissance, which was fully professional, uh, would play Morgan State and others. And this was, you know, well before there was an NCAA uh, or an NIT. And um, eventually that, you know, that there were regulations that were put in place, especially by the AAU. But uh, that back then it was really more for the overall community and for the, for, you know, started with wellness. Eventually there was more money. Then they started to realize, okay, let's split the gate receipts. And, uh, you know, then there was a struggle for, for a, over a decade between the forces that wanted the game to be professional in the black community and those that said, no, we can't do that. That's forbidden. Um, we, you know, we don't want to go there because because the game was not meant to be professional. The game will get ruined. The Luther, Luther Gulick, who I mentioned, who is the person who gave James Naismith that homework assignment, uh, was adamantly against professionalism in, in basketball. Uh, so much so that if you played professional baseball or any other sport and they found out you, you could get sanctioned, your team could get uh, prohibited from playing against other teams that were uh, you know, that, that were, um, abiding by those rules. And so it was, it was quite interesting that that battle that took place, but eventually the professional forces of professionalism won. 
it seems like that was the there the the start of this whole battle between well you're either professional you're amateur um, whether it could be Olympics or any of that kind of competition college um, and you mentioned you know you mentioned the two other the other sports at that time with the time you're talking about I mean professional baseball is already is already up and is a, is a thing now professional football is already a thing now um, is there a comparison at all to the development? in what you're talking about with the African-American teams and the like Negro leagues or things like that. Is there any sort of a comparison around that time? It's uh, there's a parallel, but it's, it's a little different because in baseball, there was never any battle with regard to being professional or not. Like right from the beginning, they were just out, they were just out to make money. Um, and there was no real, you know, amateur circuit. And again, the baseball didn't come out of the YMCA, which the Young Men's Christian Association, they were very pious in, in some ways. So, by the way, so much so that it, during the 1910s and before that, you were not really allowed to play basketball during Lent, during Lenten season. <laughs> it was considered, you know, one of those things that you had to... Um, uh, abstain from, right? Yeah. So, so, so if, if you look for, if you sort of fast forward entire March madness in most cases is during Lent, right? So it's yes. forbidden. It's a forbidden I, tournament. It's just fascinating <laughs> to me though, that, that I guess, cause you're saying it came out of the, 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 like the YMCA, which is a Christian organization. So there's a little more of a puritanical view on stuff, but it, it, as opposed to other sports, I mean, what's the difference of playing baseball, football, basketball? It's a game. It's recreation. You know, why should one be considered taboo and the other be fully embraced? Yeah, they, they were just different back then. Like baseball, they weren't allowed to play on Sundays. You know, they had Sunday laws against yeah, baseball true. and and um, alcohol and different other, you know, men and women were an unaccompanied woman was not allowed to dance with a man at a, at a dance hall, you know, stuff yeah. like that. Things so, have changed. So Times things have changed. have changed. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, and, 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 you know, so I, I write about that too, in, in my book, you know, in terms of some of what happened and how come there was this, uh, this ballroom that emerged, uh, and flourished up, uh, on 155th and 8th Avenue called the Manhattan casino. It's no longer there, but that's, just so happens to be right across the street from Rucker Park. And so mm -hmm. that's interesting. And then the polo grounds were right there, Caddy Corner, uh, from that facility. Um, and teams would come from from out of town. Two, two out-of-town teams would come to play at the Manhattan Casino because they would get up to 6,000 spectators. And that's how, that's how Harlem and specifically New York City became the mecca of black basketball during that time. I, I guess so. The parallel, I, you know, I, I, I went to the Negro League Museum last year in Kansas City, and there's a great, you know, there's great stories and characters, and but it was kind of like this this parallel professional league that was working to try and um, and they couldn't penetrate, you know, the integration and things like that. It sounds like with 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 the fives, it's more of it. It wasn't running parallel with the NBA or, or when the NBA started, it was the NBL or whatever it was. Um, but it was more this this period of time beforehand that is kind of this little jewel that we're, we're with great characters and great players. And you mentioned the think of the pageantry of being in a ballroom in New York City where there, there's a there's an orchestra playing as well as there's a uh, 
there, you know, there's a basketball game going on, a team called the Renaissance. And I mean, there's just this, this, this magical kind of thing. I could see it like a, like a movie um, that's kind of just forgotten. And I, and I would imagine, so that's, that's kind of just the story you're trying to tell is about this, this golden age that maybe gets overlooked at certain times. Absolutely. I, I love how you're evoking just the imagery of, of that time, because that's, you know, I try to do that in the, in the book and, um, you're right. Uh, football and, and baseball had in parallel the, you know, let's say, let's call them the white professional leagues. They were racially exclusive and basketball didn't have that. They had different, you had the new England league and the, you know, the Rhode Island league and the, Western Pennsylvania League and so on. And it wasn't one league until 1949 when the National Basketball League and the Basketball Association of America merged to form the NBA. Even the BAA, uh, which I just mentioned, formed in 1946 and the NBL formed in 1937. So up until 1937, you didn't really have a dominant league, one or the other. There were yeah. numerous leagues all the time. And players sometimes played in both, you know, in three different leagues at once. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but so there wasn't really this fight. It was more, it was more. How do we get better? And how do we? There, there wasn't. A, there was no league to break into up until the '30s. It was really just because you also had a whole bunch of independent other teams. You had. You had the all-Jewish team from Philadelphia, the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association. And you had the New York original Celtics, which was mostly Irish. And you had Olsen's terrible Swedes, which was, you know, the mostly Swedish it sounds and so like, on. Uh, it sounds like, because I, I know you made a comparison. You, you referenced before, uh, if, we, if we just go back for a second, the time of the early 1900s, where it was after the Civil War, and, and you had people... In, uh, you know, coming into the big cities and that caused this overpopulation and it caused the health issues and they wanted to, uh, you know, basketball was a way of getting people healthy again. But um, you had also, I think, mentioned in your book about at the, in the late 1800s, there were the, uh, in, in New York City, and this is depicted in the movie, The Gangs of New York, um, the riots, right? The, the draft riots. And it sounds like all these things, if, you, if anybody ever watched that Martin Scorsese movie, The Gangs of New York, it was it was all these different facts, these these sects. You know, here was an Irish gang, here was a Jewish gang, here was a, a Catholic gang, and and they all kind of fought for the turf there. This is almost like a basketball version of that. There's no one set thing. It's all these different sects coming in to try and uh, battle for basketball supremacy, so to speak, in the early 1900s. That's really what it was. An excellent reference um, because. The gangs of New York, um, you know, that was centered on this area called Little Five Points, which mm -hmm. is which is still, you know, technically there. It's in, in near Chinatown, and um, you know, there were this was also a concentration of African Americans, and and eventually, you know, this uh, if you if you're from New York City and you've ever been to this little place called Minetta Lane and Minetta Street, it's right there by mm -hmm. uh, just south of uh, the West Fourth Street Cage. Mm -hmm. Um, that area, that whole area was called Little Africa because there were so many black people living there. There was an elevated train that came down uh, 6th Avenue and it turned left or depending on which direction you're coming. But if it was coming downtown, it turned left onto West 3rd. And on West 3rd is where this kid named Will Anthony Madden lived. 
And so I talk, I start the book with him because he was born in abject poverty in that section, uh, you know, in the shadow of this train. And uh, just, I even described the way the train was, like how that actually, you know, what it was like to live under a train during those times. These were giant, you know, hundreds of tons locomotives that burned coal and steam and stuff was falling on people. And uh, he, he rose from that to become the king of black basketball in the 1910s. But then after living out his life in the 1970s, he died and was buried in an unmarked grave. So I start at his unmarked grave in the book because I, I kind of want to draw the parallel that him being buried in an unmarked grave is very similar to this whole history being buried in an unmarked grave. And then I spend the rest of the book unburying Mm. that and it not to give it away but he's eventually uh there's something that happens and a progression of things that happen where he's also then vindicated and unburied and and actually you know he's in my opinion and many people's opinion a candidate for the basketball hall of fame for all of the things that he that he innovated and so that's so yes there were lots of factions and they traveled all around the country and they uh and they because back then you have to ask yourself, how did an all-Black team during Jim Crow, during the Great Depression, get invited to an all-white place like Oshkosh, Wisconsin, repeatedly win that game, leave town safely, and keep getting invited back? Well, it's just because there wasn't anything else going on. You had to, they, they didn't have movies or Netflix or anything like that. So if there was, an, if there was something coming into town like Ringling Brothers or... Uh, you know, a team that was exotic, like like Olsen's terrible Swedes. You know, they, the names would indicate like where they were from or what kind of players they were. Um, then that was like the big thing. And so people would come from miles around uh, to spend money on restaurants, um, bars, saloons, hotels. And everybody was a winner. And every place where the Rens went, because they were at some at a certain point, they just were considered the best team in basketball. Wherever they went, they were advertised as colored champions that are coming to town, but also they were a mobile uh, economic stimulus almost. So wherever they went, people made money. So they were really well loved and they helped popularize the game in far off places. And eventually other all black teams did the same thing. They mimicked and you know tried to emulate uh, what the Wrens were doing, um, but, it, but it's, it slept on, you know, people just don't realize how the, you know, we always use that catchphrase, well, they helped pave the way, but they didn't just help pave the way. They actually, they actually built uh, the the popularity. They were the way in many, in many places that those local white teams had to train and up their game because they knew that a team like the Renaissance were coming, right? Mm -hmm. So they would have never had that incentive just playing against the local other teams. And so they also saw a whole different brand of basketball and uh, envisioned new, uh, new ways that they could, that they could, uh, you know, uh, improve in terms of being, you know, players staging the game, et cetera. I mean, really, when you think about basketball and it starts in what 1947 is like the first Lee, you know, the the NBA's, just celebrated 75 years. So it was 1970, uh, 1947, um, 
was kind of where it started. It didn't become the NBA for a couple of years, as you mentioned. But, you know, the first, you know, the first uh, black player comes in in 1950. So it's only a couple of, it's, it's, it wasn't like it was some like baseball uh, where it took so long or football where it took so long. It was like kind of right away the professional league started integrating. What do you, what do you, do you, do you feel like basketball has always been a, a little more commonality or a little more, um, you know, inclusive than, I mean, I know, you know, you have the, the, how long it took for college basketball and, and then the, you know, the, the all black team in the final four for the first time, it took a long time. There's still a lot of racism in the South. You mentioned Jim Crow, but I feel like for, as it's represented now, and it's, it's been the most inclusive going even back to what you're talking about. And maybe the fact that a team like the Wrens or these these clubs you're talking about that would barnstorm and set the standard, um, they helped make it that way, or they did make it that way. Yeah, I mean, the, the Smart Set Athletic Club of Brooklyn back before 1910 routinely played against all-white teams. This was just no big deal back then. And, and that in other sports, that was not happening. That was definitely not the case. In boxing, it was very difficult for a prize fighter to, to get on the path towards a championship because they had to usually come through a white, white boxer. Um, football, definitely. Baseball, very rarely. Uh, you had a player like Fleetwood, Moses Fleetwood. Um, uh, uh, what's his last name? Uh, you, had, you had Fleetwood Walker. And then you had, um, you know, in, in boxing, uh, you know, Jack Johnson, and it's always a re really rare exception. But in, in basketball, uh, you have to remember, too, that the National Basketball League was formed in 1937. And a year later, they had a black player. Hmm. And, and until 1946, really until 1949, the NBL had 15 other additional African-American players. So I, in my book, I talk about the NBL and also the BAA because they merged in 1949. So, you know, I make a specific point that the New York Renaissance could have been a founding team in the NBA hmm. in 1949 if it wasn't for shenanigans that took place. And, uh, you what know, were the shenanigans were you talking? Well, they, they were left out. So they were part of the NBL. Okay. And they were the best team in basketball. But they, but when they joined the NBL, they took over, uh, they took over a, a bankrupt team. And in order to take over that team, they had to also assume their record, which was a terrible record. Hmm. And in order to make money, the owner, Bob Douglas, had to split the squad. And so they, you know, had they won the NBL championship in 1948, this 48, 49 season, it would have been, uh, it would have been a challenge anyway for them to have uh, joined the NBA. But then they also had uh, this championship that started in 1939 called the World Championship of Professional Basketball. And the Rens won the inaugural championship a team called the Harlem Globetrotters that everybody knows as a comedy team was actually a bona fide skilled team in 1940. Mm -hmm. They won in 1940. Mm -hmm. um, a team called the Washington Bears, which was made up of Wren's players, won in 1943. 
1948, the Wrens were close, minutes away from winning the final championship of that series. They were playing uh, the Minneapolis Lakers. And uh, something happened in that game that made some players later think that it was thrown. And then the player who was suspected of throwing the game, and I'm not giving it away by saying this, uh, was later signed by Abe Saperstein to oh, the, the highest contract. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Harlem Globetrotters. And then if you if you say, well, who stood to benefit the most from not having a black team in the NBA? One of the one of those was Abe Saperstein because he had a monopoly on black talent. Mm. And as a matter of fact, um, the BAA when they uh, were struggling, you know, after 1946, they um, used the Globetrotters as the front end of their double headers. And uh, Mr. Saperstein threatened to end that relationship if the NBA signed black players. But it was Ned Irish of the Knicks who said, look, we're just going to leave and go back to being an independent barnstorming team if you don't let us sign uh, Nat Sweetwater Clifton. And, and, and then that led to, you know, 1950, eventually the first three players, uh, Chuck Cooper was the first drafted and then uh, Earl Lloyd was the first who played with the Capitals. And then, um, and then that Sweetwater Clifton was the first who was signed uh, by the Knicks. And so uh, it, as it stood, the NBA, when it, when it uh, opened its doors in 1949, had 17 teams, which if you're just doing the math of the scheduling, it's really, really super yeah. awkward. It's, they had three divisions and it was, you know, really bad. Um, and then the, the following year, they added that 18th team, but by then the, the the Rens had to, you know, had financially dissolved. And now, though, they are depicted on the walls of Barclays Center uh, for everyone to see and learn and, and get to know and hopefully maybe then go pick up uh, a copy of your book and to learn all about it. Now, like, how did that come about? How did you get the Rens to be identified at Barclays Center, I know you had something to do with that. Well, so um, uh, when I was uh, trying my best to do the research and on this quest, um, I started uh, collecting images and artifacts, and this was years ago. And um, one day I was sitting next to somebody, um, you know, at a conference who happened to be an art curator that was in these meetings at Barclays before Barclays was completed. And in those same meetings uh, was a, a gentleman named Sean Carter, who was a part owner of the- Better of the known Nets as at the time. Jay-Z. Better, yeah. <laughs> better yeah. known as Jay-Z, right, Hove? And um, she said, because people may not remember, but I know you do, that when Barclays was opened, there was some you know, a, a, a community um, sensitivity and uh, awareness, and they were trying their best to represent the community through yeah. art and through other things, you know, that would help be an out outreach. And so um, we we had, you know, a collection of of African American related vintage basketball uh, images, um, and so in uh, Brooklyn related especially. And so um, you know, then I was asked to come down and. And, and present uh, or, or, or provide a compilation of these images. 
which they then loved. And I, I heard that Jay really loved the idea. And so they took these images and blew them up to mural size and put them um, uh, permanently installed in the concourse. So if you go into the uh, Barclays Center today and you go into the main entrance, left and right, you'll see uh, six images with some insets also of Brooklyn-related teams, including the Smart Set Athletic Club, including uh, the New York girls and the Spartan girls, which were the sister, couple of the sister teams. And one player, uh, Dolly King, who, who played uh, eventually for the uh, New York Rens. And that photo that's in there, he's um, with LIU. Uh, so that's where I was referencing earlier. He, he left in 1941. Um, they ended up winning the NIT, but he knew that he wasn't going to be drafted because there was no such thing as a draft. And he, he toured with the, with the Rens because they were going out to these different uh, tournaments um, in Cleveland and in Chicago where the, there was a cash prize. And so, you know, that was your best way um, to make a lot of money back then as a professional player. Back then, you know, renting an apartment for a whole month might be, you know, a four bedroom apartment might be $25 a month. And these guys are making 125 or more per, per month. So. And uh, well, you mentioned Dolly King, that was, he, LIU was a national powerhouse back then too, right? Claire B. Yes. The head coach, right? It, it, and you know, any of these players, is Dolly in the Hall of Fame? He's in the he's in the uh, uh, LIU Hall of LIU Fame. LIU Hall of Fame. I think that he ha has a shot and could deserve to be in the in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. Are there any any players from the five era that are in the Naismith Hall of Fame in Springfield? Yes, yes, and I'm happy to say, you know, through our organization, the Black Fives Foundation, uh, about you know, we've been doing this since the 1990s. Um, but, uh, you know, about the past 15 years or so, we've been strong advocates for the proper recognition of these pioneers and the Basketball Hall of Fame. We've helped them with information and research and, um, you know, an advocacy for, for, for some of these players. And I mentioned there were women's teams. Um, and one of those women's teams was a team called the Tribune Girls that was sponsored by the Philadelphia Tribune newspaper in, in, in Philly. Uh, and they won 11 straight black national championships from hmm. 1930 to 19 into the early 1940s. Wow. And their star was a woman named Aura Washington, who uh, the Hall of Fame enshrined. Um, and as a result, she's the earliest female uh, uh, enshrinee in the Hall of Fame, um, black woman named Aura Washington, who, after she left basketball, became... Um, a maid, a housekeeper, and died uh, with no one knowing, what, you know, of her amazing contribution to the sport as well wow. as to tennis. Um, and there, and then there's, you know, uh, others, many of them from the Rens. The question was, if the Renaissance was formed uh, as a team a hundred years ago in 1923, and playing 150 games a season. Through 1949, they won more than 85% of their games, if you just imagine and visualize that. Mm. And many of the teams that they played, like the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association, the original Celtics, and others, their players are in the Basketball Hall of Fame, but the Renaissance were not. You had this one team from 1933 that won 88 straight games in 86 days, 
And that team as a, as a collective was enshrined in 1963, which was important. That was the first African-Americans enshrined. And then it took about another 10 years for the owner to be enshrined. And then another 10 years for the biggest star, Charles Tarzan Cooper, to be enshrined. And another 10 years. So these, these skips of nine, 10 years, while the other guys, as John Isaacs used to say, he was one of the pioneers that I got to know, were just getting enshrined, you know, year after year after year. So eventually the Hall of Fame uh, adopted a, a new approach, which was they created um, a, a committee, the uh, Early African-American Basketball Pioneers Committee, to, to do direct, um, to direct inductions into the hall. Previously, you had to go through a veterans committee and you became a finalist and nobody knew anything about you. Mm. And so I, you know, I took the, the baton, or our organization, myself, included, took the baton from Howie Evans, who was a longtime journalist with the Amsterdam News. And he started really advocating and pushing um, the Hall of Fame in the 60s to begin recognizing these earlier uh, pioneers. And so, you know, I was really inspired by him. He was on our board uh, for a while. And, um, you know, so I took that baton and we just kept running with it. And so now you have up to, uh, we're up to 12 uh, players from that era who are in the Hall of Fame now. That's great. And, and, and you know, so much due to the work that you've put in. Uh, you, you mentioned that you worked at the NBA. What did you do at the NBA? And when was that? That was from 1994 to about 1998. And I started out as director of international business operations. And then that morphed into director of international licensing so we, this was when, you know, Champion and Starter and some of those early names uh, were, were growing into Europe, um, especially, but also Asia as well. And so I was the liaison between, uh, you know, the NBA uh, New York office and the offices that the league was starting up in places like, uh, like uh, Geneva and um, London uh, and, and elsewhere, eventually Paris. And, and we also had an office in Hong Kong and in Australia and in, uh, and in Tokyo. Um, and I, that's when I, you know, discovered through Arthur Ashe's book, A Hard Road to Glory, uh, the, the tennis legend, uh, he wrote a book about the, the journey of the African-American athlete. And he named several early African-American teams, including the Smart Set Athletic Club. And it's, I was living in Brooklyn and I was in licensing. So I'm sitting there going, Wait, I'm smart. I'm athletic. I live in Brooklyn. This is my club, like 1904. Yeah. Uh, what's going on with that? What's up with that? And then I saw myself one day wearing Smart Set Athletic Club of Brooklyn t-shirt, you know, walking down Flatbush. And then, you know, lo and behold, I'm walking down Flatbush and fast forward, uh, all of a sudden, here's Barclays Center. Mm. And this was years later. Um, and in Barclays Center, there's now Smart Set Athletic Club uh, you know, imagery. And we, we even, now we have, you know, merchandise and partnerships with, with, uh, you know, global corporations that are helping tell this story. So it's really been a journey and a, you know, a, a, a labor of love, uh, for, for, for me and for us. And, um, that's what I was, that's what I was doing there. But when I was at the league, that's when they launched NBA.com. Um, you know, is Rick Welts was still there and we're, Things you started know, to take off. Yeah, everything was cooking. When you you say you so now you used your um, 
your licensing background, everything, and you started, uh, I guess, taking some of the images from these Black Five teams, right? The uh, the logos and things like that, and using them in merchandise, and then you you turn this into a five hundred one c three, correct? The Black Fives, yes, foundation. Yes. Um, so you're, it, it wasn't like you were just you were just kind of stealing the old stuff and merchandising it. Like you've turned this into a way to fund the awareness of this time and, and push these, these measures forward. Um, what today, so the, the Black Fives Foundation, what are sort of the, the primary goals and, and what is kind of the day-to-day of that? Yeah, and I have to say that, I mean, anyone can find a defunct logo and start making merchandise. And it's just that, you know, because of my licensing background, I, I trademarked the names and the logos. I taught myself Illustrator and Photoshop and traced trace the logos, you know, from, from images. So for example, here's a fitted cap. That's the smart set athletic club of, of, of Brooklyn. Yeah. That's sharp. uh, We're on zoom, a light blue with a dark blue logo with the, uh, interlocking, uh, S A C for smart set athletic. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I found those, that logo, you know, off of images and just tracing those images and it's not owned by anyone, right? They weren't, they're, they're. No, they're just images off of photos, you know, other companies are doing this too. And uh, at the time they were doing that. And so, but I decided that not only did I want to have a cap or a t-shirt, but I also wanted this history to be preserved. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you don't, do it through licensing or through trademarking, then anyone can just do anything. And if and since licensing and merchandise is almost like its own language, right, on the streets, um, then that just means anybody can say anything about this history. And I didn't want that. I wanted it to be accurate. I wanted it to be clean. Um, I didn't want to see it all up and down, you know, 14th Street or wherever in different markets. And so I thought, all right, let me just see if we can protect this first, because then we can try to, you know, make the merchandise and tell the story the right way. But it's going to be hard to sell a T-shirt to you for your nephew, but it's easier for me to talk to you about a cause or about a mission, because then whether you get the T-shirt or not, you, you still you can still be hyped about that that mm. that mission. And so um, it, it's, it and then what what also happened is that. We got very lucky because, uh, you know, I was started making jerseys during the during the throwback era. But, um, you know, it was really toward the end of the throwback era, uh, partly because of Mr. Carter saying change clothes in his song. But not only because of that, it was just there were knockoffs coming in. And and so that whole um, that whole trend kind of collapsed. Uh, but at that time, you know, I started thinking, um, you know, we, we got, we got this merchandise onto some really visible, uh, uh, you know, rap artists like Ludacris and, and, uh, and the Roots and, um, exhibit on Pimp My Ride and so forth. Um, and then because of that, teachers started calling and saying, Hey, can you come talk to our classroom about this? Mm. And I always thought like, what I would never can think of charging a teacher, you know, in a classroom that's trying to borrow pencils from, you know, parents, like in any way, you know, along these lines of like charging them to come. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. That was the whole reason why I was doing this. But in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, but shouldn't we have like some kind of uh, altruistic or, you know, fund or something that, and so in uh, 
2013, that came true. And, you know, I just took all of the money from, you know, the money, the assets, the everything, the, all of what we had um, and donated it to a new organization that uh, we created called the Black Fives Foundation as a 501c3. And that's right around the time, 2014, that Barclays opened and they, and actually our, our, our murals were in there on opening, on opening yeah. day. And, uh, you know, we got a proclamation from the mayor. Um, you know, it was really, really wonderful that the nets have been tremendous, uh, in terms of just being advocates and allies with, with us. And, uh, Maybe so one of these, that, maybe, when, you know, I, I see that everybody's got, you know, four different uniforms every year now in the NBA. Like, I, I don't know, I could see maybe a, like a, like a smart set throwback, right? We, listen, from you to God's ears, because <laughs> we've, we've been trying this, we've been pitching for 20 years, um, but it's always, it's always kind of like uh, slightly off because with Nike as the main, uh, pro, you know, the main on-court licensee and before them adidas um you know we we went to nike we, we went to adidas i used to work at nike um and uh and then now you know we have a partnership with puma and so that it doesn't quite work you know so but we're willing to uh wait um till it's done right you know because maybe uh in some future iteration the nba will say hey look Whoever gets the on-court rights, you have to do this, this way, the way we say, versus waiting for Nike to dictate that or Adidas to dictate that or, or even Puma or, or just even the teams necessarily. So we're, 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 we're going to, you know, we're going to chill and do it the right way. But also we're, we constantly try to advocate for that. And we are working with several teams um, just to get this story out. Uh, one shout out I want to give to is, of course, the Nets. Uh, also the Wizards, um, and then the uh, the Thunder uh, with Sam Presti, and and there's been others, and so you know we're slowly but surely uh, paving a way, literally, and uh, we also have good relations with the uh, players' union because ultimately many of these initiatives come uh, from the energy and the passion of the players in the players' union themselves. Yeah, I think they would be interested in that, and if a lot of guys didn't know about it already, they should know where it came from is there any i when i when i'm at um the in indiana indianapolis the arena there now banker's life canseco whatever it used to be um they always have a great exhibit when you walk around the main concourse of the history of indiana basketball and things like that i do you have anything in there i'm trying to i want to say i'm like i feel like i've seen something there like rents, we or don't, something. but we're we're working with them very closely okay. um, to to uh, to uh, conceive of something. And part of it, one of the reasons is that um, there's a man named George Crow, who was from Franklin, Indiana. He played for the Franklin Tiger, Franklin uh, Bear Cubs, who um, their coach is also in the in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, but what he did is. Uh, is uh, he was Indiana's first Mr. Basketball, mm-hmm. African American uh, youngster, and he eventually played uh, for uh, Indianapolis University, which was called at the time, and then played for the New York Renaissance, and he also played for the Cincinnati uh, Reds in, as a baseball player, tremendous athlete, and um, so he was part of that team in 1948 that p- was playing against the Minneapolis Lakers in that fateful game that if it had gone a different way, 
the Wrens might have been one of the founding teams <laughs> in the NBA. So there's lots of connections like that, uh, you know, that eventually that and I talk about all that in my book. Yeah. And again, the book is the, uh, the Black Fives, the epic story of basketball's forgotten era. You're still a uh, Brooklyn? You're, no, you're not. You're not living in Brooklyn anymore, though, right? I, I don't. I come to Brooklyn a lot. Okay. I do. I, do. I, lo- it, I love Brooklyn. It, yeah, because I, I, I talked to uh, the director, Shaka King, recently, and he talked about, you know, he's still born and raised, you know, he's from Bed-Stuy, still lives there. Um, and he was kind of, he was kind of against the arena when it started. You know, he, he was afraid of what it was going to do in, in terms of further gentrifying the community. Um, and he kind of rebelled against it for a little while. And then he had a little issue with what the Knicks had done. He didn't really like, he was a Nick fan and he decided to give Barkley's a try. And he went to a fight one time and he just said that, um, what he realized when he walked into Barkley center was that the Brooklyn community was there. Like yeah. he saw, he saw people from his life there. Yes. And he never got that feeling at Madison square garden. And I've always felt like the, Barclays has done a great job. And I, I, I understand the concerns going in and they still may be valid with some, but at the same time, I feel like it really has become a part of that community where when you go to a net game or you go to a concert, you know, you see people that live in the area, you, you see it's, it's become a community center. You see the way the, the courtyard, the, you know, outside the front of the building became a gathering point for different protest movements and things like that. But, you know, I was just curious as a Brooklynite, and now, you know, you see a part of your life's work, the, the Wrens there represented in the, in the arena, uh, what you think of Barclays and, you know, after 10 years now in that community. No, I mean, I, I was in Barclays when there were still like forklifts and cranes yeah, and dump trucks, you know, riding around. Yeah. In the, uh, you know, what's now, you know, a center court. Um, and I was, I was among the, you know, the concerned, I mean, at the time I wasn't in Brooklyn anymore at that time, but you know, Brooklyn was made up of small, you know, record stores and barber shops and, um, cafes and that whole area, you know, back when, back when that you could get, uh, you know, you could rent DVDs, right. To watch a movie, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And, um, you know, uh, some of that got, uh, relocated, uh, but I agree with you. If you, if, you know, I was, I had, I was invited to the opening. So Jay-Z, if people might not remember, but he did a series of opening concerts mm-hmm. and I was, I was at the opening, opening of the concerts and, and, uh, it was just tremendous. I mean, the entire arena, it seemed like every single person in the arena, Chris, knew every word of every bar in every song and was singing along whenever he dropped out, like he would just drop out yeah. his voice and, oh man. And so, you know, it was just really spellbinding, special. And you could tell, and also just the way that the Nets have done it, right? So the the hiring of uh, people from the neighborhoods and people are getting real jobs and and uh, have opportunities to move up, right? And as you can attest to, not because you were from that era, but just the the opportunity to keep going and and yeah. for that for those pathways to be available. Um, and then when you talk to people, like I just I'm one of those guys where if I'm whoever it is that's in front of me whether they have a broom in their hand or a mic or whatever, like I'm still going to be talking to them and just say, Hey, how's it going? How's your day? And you can tell from the, from the reaction, the vibe, there's a pride, 
of yeah. this is this is our Barclays Center, yeah. right? It's not somebody else's. And it goes back to the stewardship uh, point that I made earlier. You know, if if you feel like it's yours and you're like, okay, this is like something I I have some say so as I have some pride and some uh, connection, you know, to this as well. And it, it it definitely you know has diversity of employees um, and. Uh, also, the way that they have, you know, the the the, the different food courts and um, availability of what's there um, that you can buy in the arena. Um, you know, when they first opened Rock Nation, Rock Aware had a store, you know, shop like right there yeah. at street level. You know, it was dope for the whole yeah. way, the whole way around. You know, I remember Taj Gibson came to play. You know, he's from Brooklyn and from Fort Greene, and he came in to play for the first time. And afterwards, he talked about how he goes, I, I couldn't believe how many people I knew. I was, I was walking around. I saw guys that were ushers, uh, you know, uh, janitors, the guy running the elevator, you know, like they all were guys from his neighborhood and he knew who they were, you know, and it That's was a good crazy. sense of that. Good sense of that. Tosh um, Gibson was, was in a video, was in a Black Fives video, actually. If you, if, yeah, if you yeah. look it up, it was, yeah, it was amazing. Yes. Yes, sir. Nice. See, you got him. There, there, that, that's, that's great. I'm glad he did that. Um, I always end these things. By getting a sense and know the person that I'm interviewing on a personal level a little bit. I know we've talked a lot about the Black Fives and we've talked about your, your passion though for this. And you could see that you've, it's, 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 it's rare that someone comes across something in their life that they're passionate about and they can make their life's work out of it. And, um, it's, it's really fascinating to hear your story. Uh, the great Jim Valvano, the head coach had that, uh, never give up speech which has always been yes. important in my life. And yes, uh, you talk about inspiring people. He was, he actually gave that speech because he was receiving the Arthur Ashe Award at the ESPYs. Mm. And you mm -hmm. mentioned uh, how Arthur Ashe inspired you to go on this journey with his book. Yes. Um, yes. So this, this ties together with that. He would say, if you, to, do, to live a full life, everyone should do three things every day. They should laugh, they should think and they should cry um mm. the laugh part what makes claude johnson laugh oh man well i would say that uh i have three sons uh 23 uh 21 and 18 and uh, they're all student athletes um and so, uh, and the two older ones play football. Uh, my oldest just graduated from the University of San Diego. He was a cornerback. He won four conference championships, wanted to get into the NFL, really aspired to do that. He has a 40 inch vertical, four, three speed, but it just somehow didn't quite work out for him, but he's reconciled with that. Okay. So now he's helping us with our marketing. Uh, then my next one, he's a wide receiver at the University of Michigan, just elected to do his fifth year there. He, could have declared for the NFL, but wanted to see if he could give it a go. He led the team in touch, uh, receiving touchdowns last year, yeah, last yeah, season. Yeah, yep. I realized and then, that. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then my youngest, he's uh, a senior at Blair Academy in New Jersey, which is a boarding school, but they're known for wrestling and basketball. And he just committed, he's a point guard, and he just committed to play basketball for the United States Naval Academy starting wow. in the fall. Yeah, wow. so- when we talk about stuff, like we just laugh about so many things and memories and stuff that we've been through. Cause it's been a journey for all of us. You know, it's like, I'm, I was a stay at home dad for a long time after corporate America. And so I'm, I'm the first stay at home dad 
with a global sneaker deal. So <laughs> we, we laugh about that, you know, and I'm a self-taught historian and we've, we've had ups and downs and, and like, you know, you, 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 you got to realize like when somebody's friendly and smiling and happy and grateful, it's also because they had, they went through darkness, right. And they had to fight through that. And that happens sometimes it's real. It's a human thing. It's part of humanity. And if you walk around, um, and just realize that about other people, like no one's perfect. Everybody has their own journey. Everybody has things that they've been through. And if you are just aware of that, when you're walking around, then you can, then you can appreciate people better and you can find ways to like get other people to laugh because when you get somebody else to laugh, then you laugh. It's infectious. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a, a beautiful thing. And um, people need that. And uh, so we just find ways to think of the, the humor in stuff. And so I would say mostly with my sons, but there's, there's also things related to, you know, work and, observations about life and things like that. So you, you kind of jumped you know. ahead to all the other things I was going to say. So I was going to say everyone, <laughs> you know, the cry part is not necessarily in a sad way, but what, what moves your emotions? And you kind of oh, started man. to answer that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely like there's, there's, uh, you have triumphs, you know, you have tr tr triumphs over, over, uh, adversity. Um, you know, we have a saying in our, in our household, you know, it's, it's, we put it up like stoppable question mark or unstoppable question mark. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just, you look at that and you got to go, okay, well, I have a choice here. And, and sometimes, you know, the, once you achieve something, it feels so much better if you didn't think at first that you could, but you tried it anyway, <laughs> you know, just try that. Bump your head and, on the um, ceiling. Right. Yeah. You know, so, so you, you got to keep at it. And, um, uh, there is, there's sometimes just the joy of, uh, of achievement. Um, and, and, you know, when you, when you put your all into something and then you see it come to fruition, you know, I love it when people create something from nothing because, you know, I can relate to that. Um, and just, you know, keeping at it. And then, you know, people, there's, uh, a lot of, um, you know, things going on in the world where you sometimes have to, uh, pause and say, but who are there more of, you know, good people shining a light or not. And once you recognize that there's more light out here, you just don't, don't always see it, mm -hmm. but all it takes is one light to eliminate a whole room of darkness, <laughs> right? You can't put out light with darkness, but you can put out darkness with light. And so that's, that's what we try to focus on, Chris. The think part, you've given us a lot to think about here. I was going to say, usually I'll say when you, you know, they have that Oculus outside the uh, arena and everyone coming out of the subway or coming into the arena can see what message, what you would put up there. If you could put a message on that Oculus, you've given us a few options here already. Uh, but if you could put something on that board for the whole world to see, what would it well, be? Well, you know, our, our slogan with the foundation is make history now. And I would put that. And the reason I would put make history now is because you everybody wants to make history, but you can't make history someday. You can only make history by the way you behave and act and choose at this very moment, because the entire history of the universe led up to this moment. So you might as well take advantage of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it seems philosophical, but 
most people are stuck in the future with fear, anxiety, doubt, or in the past with, with grievance or shame or regret. And it's really hard to um, understand how to get into the present. And there are people like Eckhart Tolle and others who help you with that. And of course, your faith is going to help you, uh, whatever that is. And so we we try to we try to focus on on that and um, you know the recognition of the past and making it relevant is also the double meaning of make history now because we can learn something from that past um, not because we want to go back there but just because those pioneers even though they didn't realize and they were probably in many cases completely obscure changed the entire trajectory of the sport. Mm. And people like my grandfather who left Louisiana because there were too many lynchings going on. He went to the south side of Chicago and never learned how to read or write, but he was a Pullman porter for his career. And then his son, who's my dad, uh, became a college professor. Hmm. And, you know, and, and then he, all of his kids got their college degree and now all of my kids are on their way to getting a college degree. So his choice, make history now in 1919 to leave Louisiana he had no idea what the downstream trajectory would be. And so what we tell you know student athletes today is don't worry about what's going to happen. Just do the right exact thing now in this moment, because you don't know, you can't predict what the, the, the trajectory changing thing is going to be. Just like in Back to the Future, you know, you, you, <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen, but just do the right thing from a place of, of consciousness and presence today and then it'll it'll all in most cases it'll all work out one one way or another. The universe has tried to orchestrate that and choreograph that for you. Claude Johnson, the Black Fives Foundation. You're the curator of the book, The Black Fives: The Epic Story of Basketball's Forgotten Era. Um, how can people follow the Black Fives and the foundation? What's the best way to learn more? Well, our tag is Black Fives. So whether it's on Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, just at Black Fives, B-L-A-C-K-F-I-V-E-S. Um, the book, you can Google, it's on Amazon, but you can also support your local bookstore by going to bookshop.org. Uh, that's a good way to do it. Of course, go to your library. Um, we do have a, a, you know, a URL, it's thatnewbook.com, but that's just our page, but you can certainly go there. You can get gear and stuff like that as well. Um, but, uh, but that's the way to do it. And if you want to DM me personally, feel free of us, um, you know, we'll get back to you, you know, just DM us through, through IG and you're good. Yeah. And your teachers out there and especially in, uh, in, in communities that would have interest in this, get you out there, right, Claude? You want to go talk to the kids? Yeah. That's what it's all about for me. You know, my, my dad was an, as a, was a, a teacher, you know, and somehow Apple probably doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, you want to do something right. Claude, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you very much, Chris. It's great being on with you. Thank you, Claude. All right. My thanks to Claude Johnson, author of the book, The Black Fives, The Epic Story of Basketball's Forgotten Era. Um, he has the Black Fives Foundation. You learn more about that, uh, and as he mentioned, if you're a if you're a teacher out there, and you want to teach your students, your young students, more about the history of that era and you know, African American contributions to the 
to the development of eventually the, the MBA or Black History Month, definitely reach out to Claude and uh, he'll, he'd love to come speak at your school. Uh, it really enjoyed talking to him and, and TD, bringing Tom Dowd back in here. It really was a uh, enlightening conversation. I, I passed those murals at Barclays Center so many times and, you know, read the little blurb about them, but didn't get it. Uh, uh, I think Claude was able to give me a, a richer understanding of that era of New York City basketball, which is amazing. Yeah, I mean, Claude's book is just, it's immaculately researched. And I'm talking like like old school research, like, you know, go to the, the library and dig through the microfilm looking at old newspapers. And, Remember that? And, yeah, fortunately, that's a memory. I, now we can just Google everything. Um, yeah. You know, digging through city records and, and maps and things like that. And uh, honestly, it's on the level of, of what you would see from a PhD or a tenured professor. It's because it's it's not just a piece of basketball p- history. It's a great piece of American history that kind of puts all of its characters in the context of their times and how they got to these places um, that really made the game grow in the first half of the 20th century. Who was the guy we talked about, the Smart Set Athletic Club, whose picture is on the wall at Barclays Center? That's Dolly King. He was a Dolly little bit after Dolly King. He was a little bit after the Smart Set, yeah. and and he's kind of, you know, I I did uh, an episode of my Basketball's Borrow podcast that's coming up, and it kind of tried to cover the first fifty years of of basketball in Brooklyn, and when you look at that period, you have Dolly King, who is probably the best basketball player to come out of Brooklyn between. 1900 and 1950. Um, but because, like we were saying before, that history is not deeply covered, he's kind of a forgotten guy. What's his connection to Red Holtzman? He played with Red Holtzman on the Rochester Royals, and this is where things get twisty. Like <laughs> this is this is the old National Basketball League, which you know a bunch of its teams merged. First, they jumped to the Basketball Association of America, and then they merged. And so, um, you know, Dolly King played for the Rochester Royals in 1946 because the National Basketball League was integrated at that time, mm. uh, not very deeply, where the, the NBA wasn't when it first founded. And so the Rochester Royals were a very good team in that league. They won the championship the year before he got there. And, and the future Hall of Fame coach, Red Holzman, who was another Brooklyn guy, he was a guard on that team and, and he and Dolly played together and roomed together for a year. And for people who don't know all the history, the Rochester Royals today are better known as the Sacramento Kings. Yeah. Went to Kansas City first. Yep. And then ended up out in Sacramento, who are uh, 10 games over 500 this year for the <laughs> yeah. first time in uh, 18 years. How about that one? Yeah. They but, light, um, the, uh, light the laser or whatever they do up there. But yeah, I mean, Dolly, you know, at the time, college basketball was a little bit of a bigger deal. And yeah. And New York City was the center of college basketball. And he played for Long Island University, which had a Hall of Fame coach in Claire B, was a, a national powerhouse. They won the NIT twice, yeah. kind of when that was a bigger deal in the NCAA. Yeah. And, and Dolly played at LIU, and then he jumped to play for the New York Renaissance. And, and maybe that puts him in, in context uh, better than anything else can, because in the first 50 years of the 20th century, you've got the original Celtics, independent team, and you've got the New York Rens, which was an all-black team. And they really are the two prominent teams uh, of that period. And and they weren't deep rosters. They went had seven or eight guys. And, and Dolly King was was on that team, which is, you know, one of the best teams in the world. Just as, as an aside, you know, you talk about the college game was the thing 
and, and it was an East Coast thing most of the time back there before the NBA really got going. And then you had the, uh, I, I know this because Marty Glickman was my broadcasting coach and he was so connected to college basketball when they started broadcasting. He ended up being the original voice of the Knicks for a very long time, but before that was a college broadcaster. And people always say, well, you know, why isn't Marty Glickman regarded like Vin Scully around the country? Marty did a lot of college and college was a big deal. And then you had the CCNY scandal with fixing games, right? Mm -hmm. And that led, I think, to the popularity of the professional game. Like college basketball took a real hit with the CCNY scandal. And it kind of, and Marty was kind of a, like attached to the college game back then. So it's a really, it, it, there's a kind of this really interesting how the NBA came to be that I don't think people know a lot about. You know? Yeah, I mean, and it really changed the history of the college game because it, it really decimated college basketball in New York City. There's, you know, CCNY, Long Island University, which I mentioned is a Brooklyn school. They were crushed by that scandal. Yeah. Um, the history of Long Island University basketball might look very different. It might be a very different basketball program today if those scandals hadn't happened in 1950 and then, you know, we're later on the Jack Molina scandal in the 60s, which we'll, we'll talk about in our Basketball's Borough podcast later on because that affected a lot of great Brooklyn players. Basketball is Borough podcast series. Uh, look forward to uh, seeing that. Anything else you want to provide information about that? Yeah. I'm still waiting for a release date, correct? A launch date is, is TBA. We're working hard on it. Okay. We, we feel good about the first couple episodes and it's, it's just going to be a lot of fun. Um, I just finished uh, writing the episode about the Big East. We, you know, we're going to talk about Pearl Washington and Chris Mullen. So we really cover a lot of ground. And uh, Yeah. You put a lot of work into that. So uh, really look forward to that coming out. And speaking of New York City basketball, next week here on The Voice of the Nets, it is my honor to have on Keith Ergo, the head coach of Fordham University. We're going to talk to him right before the start of the 810 tournament, which is at Barclays Center. That's the hook. That's the hook for me to get the Fordham head coach onto the Voice of the Nets podcast. Just saw him last night on Bruce Beck doing the, uh, the Bruce Beck's uh, you know, midnight show there on uh, NBC Channel 4. I was a little upset that, you know, Bruce got the, got to him before I did, but no, we're going to, uh, we'll talk to Keith Ergo, who's an interesting guy. You know, he's had a long history of college basketball trying to revive the Fordham program, which he has done. They've won more games this year than they have since I was a student back there. That's a long, that's over 30 years ago, by the way. Um, so we're going to talk to Keith Ergo and Fordham and, uh, another part of New York city basketball and TD. We appreciate you uh, setting this up with Claude Johnson and look forward to the Basketball is Burrow podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chris. All right. That's, uh, that's TD. We gave you a bunch of things to read. I told you about uh, the Black Fives, the epic story of Basketball's Forgotten Era by Claude Johnson. Gave you the Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And uh, I just, I'll, I, I always got to give somebody something to watch or listen to. And stay, stay with me, TD, here. I'm here. As we continue. Um, so I was flying back from Atlanta and we, we, we were on a plane that actually had live TV. We don't normally do that. It had a lot of movie options and things like that. And uh, I could have watched the basketball game. And I just, I'm just, after that game in Atlanta, I was just, I needed to, I needed to clear my head. I needed just something mindless for the hour and 45 minute flight home. And I stumbled across a movie I wanted to see. 
was called the uh, the Phantom of the Open. You know this movie, Tom? I don't. I'm, I don't think I've ever even heard of it. This is a movie that just uh, it was. It's a recent movie starring Mark Rylance. You know Mark Rylance. I'm a big fan of Mark Rylance. He's yeah. terrific, incredible we, 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 actor, and yeah. I'm a huge fan of his as well. Uh, it's the story. It's a. It's it's based on a true story. It's a true story of a guy in in England who somehow got his way into the the British Open in 1976, despite the fact that he had never played a round of golf in his life. And he kind of, it's not that he was um, trying to fool anyone or that he was trying to, uh, that he was a fake or a fraud or, you know, or the guy who was like uh, the one who used to dress as different people and, you know, get in the layup line of the all-star game. He's not like one of those guys. Um, it was more the story of a guy who just was a very simple man who was, who was older and he was losing his job as a crane operator. And his wife would just always remind him to do something great. And he just saw golf on the, the British open on TV and said, I'm going to do that like very earnestly thing, I'm going to do that. And somehow messed up the application so badly, like figured out, oh, you have to fill out an application. Okay. Messed it up so badly and put that he was a professional that they stamped him into the tournament. And, you know, I mean, I won't give away all the, the movie, but you know, he, he, he shoots a 121 in, <laughs> in the first round until they realize this guy's not really a professional golfer, and it's the worst round of golf ever played in a, in a major. Uh, but it tells his story and his family life, and it's a true story. It is really cool. I enjoyed it. So that's my recommendation. You know what? 121 on a British Open course for a guy who never swung a club before is well, pretty no, he good. Had, he, he, had, he, had, he, was, he had pra like he practiced okay. leading up to the tournament, but he didn't. Like he didn't, he couldn't even get on a golf course. Like he was this like working guy in England and barely could get a set of clubs. And like, he would just go to the park and he would hit golf balls. And, you know, he thought he was pretty good. You know, and then he realized, <laughs> and then he sees a guy tee off on the first tee and he's like, whoa, that guy's, wow, look how far he hit the ball. You know, like it was really, it's cool. And, and, and Mark Rylance is such a great actor. And, and that's, I think the, the real appeal of it for me was I love watching him. And, you know, he, he's so earnest is a, is a word I used with him. And uh, one of the greatest scenes, I think, that I, that I always point to in a film was from Mark Rylance in the movie Bridge of Spies. You remember that movie with Tom Hanks? Yeah, that's true. And he played a Russian um, spy who was living in the United States embedded in the United States and they find him out and they put him on trial. And, um, this is another like kind of stoic philosophy thing is there's a scene where he's about to get sentenced and, um, he's just sitting there and Mark Rylance, his character, which he won an Academy Award for, by the way, as supporting actor in Bridge of Spies. And he's just sitting there and he, it looks like, you know, he's reading the morning paper and they're about to sentence him. And, Tom Hanks turns to him and he says, aren't you worried? And he looked up at him very earnestly, like not being a wise guy. He just said, would it help? <laughs> and I always point that to people who, 
uh, have, you know, going through something where they're worried and, you know, aren't you worried? Well, w- would it help? You know, so that, that always stuck out with me and, uh, he, his character is great in this movie and, and he's great. So it's a recommendation for you there, Tom. Go watch yeah, that. no, he's terrific in there and, uh, he plays it that way. Stoic very throughout. And I know you and I were talking Christopher Nolan movies before we started recording. He was in yes. Dunkirk. He was very good. And I actually saw him a couple of years ago. He was doing Twelfth Night on Broadway and just a wonderful actor. Great to see in anything. And, and even in the um, the trial of the Chicago Seven, if anybody ever saw that, he yes. plays the uh, Alan Dershowitz, right? Is the lawyer for the Chicago Seven, I believe it is. Or I have the wrong lawyer. He wasn't. He I don't think it was Dershowitz. He played the lawyer. Was he yes. playing Kunstler? William Kunstler. William Kunstler. Yes. I'm sorry. I had my wrong, had my wrong lawyer there. Yeah. Yes. William Kunstler. Yeah. He, uh, and he was perfect in that. Yeah. And it took me, it took me a while to realize it was him actually. That it was him. Yeah. yeah. He is um, a, he is a chameleon. Yeah. Dunkirk. He talked about, he's in that as well. Great, great film there. Uh, anyway, we, we've, we've gone on <laughs> quite, quite a while here with the post game show. TD, looking forward to your, uh, basketball's borough podcast. Um, I don't know, you, you know, you're, you're sort of making a move within the organization. You may not have time to work with us as much here on the voice of the nets, but we appreciate everything you've done, uh, this past year in getting this thing up and going and all the great guests that we've had. And I will still lean on you to do some more of it. And I appreciate all your hard work and attention to it. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm, I'm always happy to help. And I'm definitely looking forward to dropping back in a couple more times once we get, uh, Basketball's borough up and rolling just to uh, talk about some of the great stuff we got there. All right. That's Tom Dowd. Thanks to our guest, Claude Johnson. Thanks to our engineer, Isaac Lee. Always making us sound good. We'll talk to you next week when we have Keith Ergo from Fordham. Hopefully they will be in the top four and have the double bye at the Atlantic 10 tournament, which is next week at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Until then, I'm Chris Carino. This has been the Voice of the Nets. (laughs) 